Chapter 19. The inspirations which I experienced from 1959 to 1961, the last three years of my seminary preparation, were pretty much what I described in Chapter 13, where I spoke of the excitement in the experience of examining some of the mysteries which the Catholic Church has been teaching since apostolic times, the times of the original Twelve Apostles and St. Paul. The inspirations came from the analogies and the metaphors which we explored to understand what we are trying to grasp with our intelligence when we're dealing with mysteries. We want so much to understand what these mysteries really mean. And we find that the vocabulary of our physical reality is woefully inadequate to speak of realities which are of another level of reality. The level which science return, re, refers to as the non-local domain or the virtual or the quantum domain. The level which mystics and yogurts, uh, yogis in the Eastern world call the spiritual world and what the shaman called the world of the spirit before religions even existed. In the last years of seminary preparation, 59 to 61, I was elevated in stature in the Catholic hierarchy. I was elevated to three momentous levels called holy orders. They were the orders of subdiaconate, diaconate, and priesthood. And it's priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. The church uses that phrase in order to refer to a Melchizedek of the Old Testament, the only priesthood in the Old Testament that used bread and wine for sacrifice. And that's what Catholic priests use in the transubstantiation of the Eucharist, one of the mysteries that I referred to. And about these holy orders, I wish that I could report that receiving these three holy sacred orders were experienced by me as momentously as they are described to be. I viewed these three elevations intellectually and perhaps too abstractly, but I felt nothing of their attributed momentousness. No matter how hard I tried to feel these three intellectual rituals, I experienced only the intellectual and not the emotional, except for priesthood. That one did get to me emotionally. The ritual conferring, conferring subdiaconate was particularly dry and matter-of-fact in how I experienced it. The way that came about was I followed the rector of our seminary, a very wonderful, caring priest, into the private chapel which all the priests of our faculty used for their devotional practice there at St. Thomas Seminary in Denver. I don't remember standing, kneeling, or sitting. I just remember being in the presence of a huge book, like the, the, the Missal, which is used by a priest at Mass. It's an oversized book with much gilded edging and enlarged print. I don't remember words used by the rector nor words used by me. I know we were there for me to solemnly take the vow of celibacy, a vow which I mentioned earlier in this narration. I had been practicing by avoiding all female companionship since I had been a freshman in high school. So saying the words of the vow seemed like it felt so anticlimactic since I had been living celibate for 11 years already. It didn't seem to have much meaning.
I do not I did not feel skeptical of the ritual. I just didn't I just felt no emotion to my words, nor whatever words the rector proclaimed there in that little chapel, just the two of us, with no one else present. I was dressed in the same cassock which I wore at that seminary day in and day out. There were no festivities for me nor for any of the others in my class who also went through the same ritual as I just had. I don't recall us congratulating one another for having gone through one of the three major orders. The ceremony for our diaconate took quite a bit more ritualism and felt more like an event of significance. All our class was conferred this holy order in the main chapel at St. Thomas Seminary, and we were all together when that happened. We all wore albs, which is a long white tunic, and it's girded at the waist with a white cord called a cincture, and we have a purple stole over our one, one shoulder, and the presiding prelate was one of the Denver uh, auxiliary bishops. I don't remember his name. But I remember a special meal greeted one's table for the entire student body in honor of us, the recipients of the diaconate. We were now deacons. Deacons have the power to perform baptisms and were able to distribute Holy Communion way before Vatican II in the early 60s allowed lay ministers to distribute the sacrament as well as priests. Those classmates of ours who were from the Denver and the Pueblo Diocese had many relatives and friends at that pontifical high mass when we, which was celebrated for us when we were ordained deacons. The elevation to the order of priesthood carried much more meaning for the powers that it was intended to bestow on its recipients. That elevation I experienced with more feeling than indeed I, that indeed I now possessed something I had been heading towards for twelve long, arduous, and wonderful, wonder, wonder-filled years. We were all ordained to priesthood back in our respective diocese by our particular bishop. And that's what we did. In my case, I was ordained with Dixon Hartford and Bob Getz by Bishop Metzger in St. Patrick's Cathedral in El Paso, where my brother had been ordained three years prior. We too had a pontifical high mass celebrated by our bishop, and he was assisted by a deacon and a subdeacon. And there were scores of priests from all over the diocese in attendance in the sanctuary when we were ordained. And we, the ordinandi, the term used for those that are about to be ordained, lay prostrated in front of, in front of the altar, face down, symbolizing our willingness to be humble in the service of the church and symbolizing our obedience to the bishop who would designate where in his diocese we would serve. The cathedral was jam-packed by families and friends who rarely witnessed three new priests ordained for our diocese. Two of us were native to El Paso Diocese, another novelty for our missionary diocese. The year was 1961, 12 years from the 1949 when I had begun the journey as a 15-year-old. I cannot calibrate the tons of support and encouragement which greeted me year in and year out during those 12 years of preparation. This gave me an emotional high to have arrived. The three of us, Hartford, myself, and uh, Getz, went to our respective 
parishes to celebrate our first Mass the following Sunday at whatever church, whatever parish we belong to. I received a kind of a special attention because I was the second one from my family to be ordained. The honor was really for my family, not for me, but I glowed with the attention. I chose to celebrate my first Mass at St. Pius X Church in El Paso, where Monsignor Gaynor was pastor and where he chose to preach at my first Mass. I also chose to celebrate a second first Mass a week later at St. Genevieve's in Las Cruces, where I had attended grade school at Holy Cross Elementary from kinder to the sixth grade. And then I chose to celebrate a third first Mass in the little village where I had been born 27 years before, in Rincón, New Mexico. My grandparents still lived there, plus a few uncles and aunts. I intended to honor my grandmother and my grandfather by going there. I knew no one in the village and had never known any except my own relatives. My grandparents knew everyone there, and they were known by everyone. Back in El Paso, the same Father O'Sullivan who had orchestrated a fabulous luncheon for Danny's first Mass there at St. Pius X, also orchestrated not one but two banquets for me, one at St. Pius in El Paso and one for my second first Mass in Las Cruces. Both events gave rise to much well-wishing and generous monetary gifts, which bought me my first car, a 1955 red-and-white Oldsmobile, which I got to love. It wasn't until 1966, five years later, that I could afford to buy my first new car off the lot. That turned out to be a 1966 Ford Mustang, a fastback, a 2 by 2 In my last, in my uh, first three years at St. Joseph's Parish in El Paso, assistant priests like me earned $60 a month in salary, plus room and board, and plus another $60 in stipends. Stipends were given for either baptisms or St. Mass or conducting weddings or funerals. A small amount was given to the priest that conducted those. As diocesan priest versus an order priest, I had to buy my own clothes, I had to buy my own car, my own car insurance, gasoline, etc. Order priests don't own any property. They take a vow of poverty, which means they will not own any property. And so all that they use belongs to the order to which they belong. And so the order supplies them with all else besides room and board, cars, clothes, etc. With all the liturgy, the ritual, and the festivity associated with ordination to priesthood, I admit I felt much more positive emotion. What I did not feel was that I had great powers because of the words pronounced by my bishop, which spoke of the power to preach the gospel and the power to change bread and wine to the body and blood of Jesus, the Son of God, the power to administer all the sacraments of the Catholic Church except the sacraments reserved for bishops, like the power to ordain another person to priesthood or to help in the consecration of another bishop to the bishopric. Many years later, I found out that Buddhism has a powerful caveat for its aspirants to enlightenment, 
that I wish someone had told me about in relation to the priesthood ordination. The Buddhist caveat is delivered in the observation that, quote, before enlightenment, one walks up steps, carries water, one chops wood and builds fire. After enlightenment comes the spoiler alert, one walks up steps, carries water, chops wood and builds fire, close quote. I wish I had known that no, I would not feel as a different person because nothing changed my person. Me, who had lived in priest's rectory since 1960, 1949 to 1961, while on vacations, me, who knew from first-hand experience how human each single priest has always been, I knew without having to be told that priests have the same vicissitudes, the same gifts, warts, and pimples as they had before the holy oils of ordination were applied to their fingers in being transferred the power to say Mass, which meant transubstantiating ordinary bread and wine into the body and blood of the Son of God. I found out that if I really wanted to feel special, I would have to earn it. It wasn't bestowed upon us, least of all on me. I never doubted that those powers were transferred to me as a designated successor to the original twelve whom Jesus had picked. Again, I engaged in the only thing I knew, the only thing I knew to do, to assent intellectually that I had the powers, but due to nothing that I had earned. It was totally a free gift because I had finished the race. But not even that made me worthy of such powers. So I settled for believing that I had the powers, but not experiencing those powers within me. My belief was based on external authority, telling me that there was an actual transfer of powers. I never felt it and was not sure why. Ironically, I truly believed that just knowing it was sufficient. At that time, I didn't believe that feeling it was necessary but I did feel something missing. I missed the feeling. In my naivete, I was trying to feel like I was a priest before I had started acting the roles of a priest. That would have been tantamount to a doctor trying to feel he or she was a doctor because the courses of med school were all successfully completed. Or a lawyer trying to feel like a lawyer before having practiced any law at all. End of chapter 19, chapter 20.